Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, the 7th of February, 2018, and this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Luke Thomas. I am the host of this podcast, which you wouldn't really uh, know since I have uh, done such a poor job of setting up the audio. Um, we'll go for about 90 minutes today as we normally do. Let's see, what are we going to get into? We're going to get into UFC 221, which is this weekend. We're going to get into UFC 222, which is ooh, uh, March 3rd. They still don't have a main event. We'll see what happens with that. We're going to get into referee and corner stoppages. We're going to get into whatever you guys want to get to. Best place to get your questions in, of course, is going to be on MMAfighting.com, where this little window is embedded. Uh, comments at Turn Green get priority, but not exclusivity. So hope you guys are doing well. It's a rainy day here in, if you're American, your nation's capital, which kind of sucks. Uh, got some new shoes yesterday. Got some Nike Air Maxes, my favorite. I'm an Air Max guy. I know some people are not. I know some people might be Jordans guys. Some people might be Adidas shell top guys. Some people might be, I don't know, you pick the shoe. But me, Air Max guy. Um, but I can't wear them because it's it'll get ruined on the first day. So that's fun. Um, what else is going on? Um, any sort of news to give you? Mm, I don't think so. I don't think so. I got my Marine Corps mug that I'm drinking this. Try this new protein. I forget what it's called. It's not good. Mm. I do not recommend it. It'll get the job done for today, but it's not good. All right. Let's get to these questions. Shall we? Very crazy time in mixed martial arts today. Yes. Uh, all right. First one. Live chat podcast. Luke, sorry for ad, admin. Not sure what that means. Uh, are you putting the live chats on podcast anymore? Yes. I had an issue with the last one, which is why it didn't go up. Uh, I know you've invested a lot. Da, 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 da. Yes. Today's live chat will definitely, I'm double recording it. So I had a problem with the audio last time. I don't know. It was so bad that it just wasn't worth uploading, but this week I've got a double recording happening. So no matter what should be able to get it up without any kind of issue. Uh, so as much as I would love to watch you in your immaculate beard, thank you, who wouldn't? Sometimes a podcast suits as it gives a chance to listen when doing other things. Duly noted. Sorry about the inconvenience. Um, if, by the way, if you want to get on podcasts, you can go to um, iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. Just sort of one word. Pipe it in. And my iTunes account or you know the show feed will come up. You can get everything there. Someone says, don't worry, I always watch your Monday Morning Analyst. Appreciate all the content you put out there, Luke. I appreciate you guys consuming it. Apologies for the issues, but I uh, just had some issues recording it last time. This should not be an issue today. And in fact, it should go up within hours after the show. So don't worry about that. Let's see. Uh, good question. That was an interesting one. Luke, what is the best way for me to consume your media for me? I prefer to listen to most of my podcasts using my podcast app that downloads from the feed, but you often give it a like and subscribe. It really helps line. And I'm just wondering if you get any benefit from the feed downloads versus when people watch, like, subscribe on YouTube. I'm really not all that picky. I think as long as you're just willing to consume it, I, I wouldn't be a hard ass about um, the way in which you did consume it. If I really felt like I wanted to direct you one direction or the other, I would only make it available on one medium. So really the answer is whatever's convenient for you guys um, is honestly is, is, is how I feel. Um, whatever you guys want to do, no problem there. If it works better on audio, do audio. If it works better on video, do video. I'm just appreciative one way or the other. I truly mean that. I can't be, 
again, if it's up to me to decide if it's going to go on only one platform, and uh, I, I try not to do that very often. Uh, let's see. I appreciate your transparency regarding SEO monetization of your media, like when you first saw the fight recaps, told everyone complaining about the spoilers to pound sand because it was better to get views. I would really appreciate some discussion on the topic as I've had the lingering question for lots of my podcasts that double up on YouTube and regular feed and would like to know how you benefit in order to keep the good S coming. Yeah. Uh, whatever works for you. Whatever works for you. Like I said, if I want to narrow it to one medium, I'll narrow it to one medium so that there's only one way to consume it. But if Twitter works for you and Facebook doesn't, do that. If Instagram works for you, and I can't imagine because I'm not that active on it, but it, what, what, whatever, whatever works for you, do that. I have a variety of platforms. Pick and choose. Um, simple as that. Hope that makes it easy on everybody. Very, very lingering problem, apparently. A lot of questions related to that. Yeah, again, there's, there's additional questions about the podcast. I promise it will go up today. Do not worry. Fret not, friends. This audio podcast will go up. There'll be no recording issues. I can always say, I mean, I can't say no, but very slim chances. All right. Let's see. Make sure this goes up. Whoop. Thank you. All right. Let's keep this going. Let's get to some MMA topics beyond merely the chat, please. Here we are. Rockhold versus Romero. Why the hell isn't this fight discussed as much as it needs to be? I don't think there's much chance of it go being boring, a non-action five-rounder. I say that based on Rockhold, by the way, because Romero can't hold back for a bit too long sometimes. But anyway, how do you think it will go? I don't care so much about a prediction of who's going to win, but what type of fight will we will see? Ooh, um, that's going to be really interesting. I, I, first of all, I agree there's not a lot of discussion around it. I think that there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Um, Australia is a really important market. I don't want to diminish it as a market, but... It's a pay-per-view, and which is typically a North American phenomenon. So if you're a North American or even a European fan, um, it's hard for this to be on anybody's radar because it's tucked away in Australia, which is not an insignificant place, but relative to other places it could be, it somewhat limits its exposure. Ronda Rousey, <clears throat> Ronda Rousey participating down there notwithstanding. I think that's one. Number two, this wasn't really the fight that anybody uh, had anticipated, right? It was supposed to be Robert Whitaker versus Luke Rockhold. We all know what happened. Yoel Romero lost his last contest to Robert Whitaker, which was a fun fight, but it didn't happen on necessarily a car that did a lot of pay-per-view buys. Um, in fact, I did, I think, like a record low number for the year, maybe. So that was another problem. Uh, Luke Rockhold had a nice rebound over David Branch, but it happened on the same night as Canelo versus Triple G. So nobody saw it. I'm not, I mean, it did okay ratings, but I don't, it wasn't, it wasn't like these guys got to this fight by competing in other big fights that really set them up. You know, that's very, very different from, let's say, Habib Nurmagomedov beating Edson Barboza. That's very different from saying, now this was not necessarily a fight that did a ton of pay-per-views, but for a title, it changes media perception to, to some degree. Um, Kevin Lee losing to Tony Ferguson, right? And then, of course, you're just in this um, orbit of Conor McGregor down there. I mean, it just sort of, uh, pardon me, make sure my audio is fine. Uh, it just elevates everything. Right? Everything gets pushed up a little bit higher. You don't really have that here. You've got it tucked away globally. You've got two excellent fighters in Romero and Rockwell, make no mistake about it, and not insignificant consequences either. But one's coming off of a loss. The other one's coming off of a win, and they hadn't, they hadn't competed in a while. And neither of them were a particularly uh, high-profile contest. And it's not the fight that anybody had anticipated making in the first place. 
And so I think as a consequence, there's a bit of malaise. I also think there's just so much MMA that people are having a difficult time concentrating not merely on this card, but any other kind of card, with the exception of the ones that are truly huge. That's another problem of having too many of these MMA cards. So there's a lot of different factors involved there. Now, as for how the fight will go, this is going to be a really interesting one to me. Yoel Romero is certainly, look, in the end, I've always said, generally speaking, when you're trying to predict who's going to win, um, if there is any kind of skill disparity, it's usually, being the operative word, usually it's going to be the more skilled fighter that wins. Skills wins fights. That's just a very easy way to um, understand the fight game. It's not a hard and fast rule, but there you are. And to me, Luke Rockhold's the more skilled fighter. I think he has just a better ability to um, set the pace, to find the complexion of the fight. He can fight off his back. He's got good wrestling. He's got good, excellent top game. Um, he doesn't get tired, provided he doesn't have this antibiotics issue. Um, he, he, can, he has excellent boxing. He's got very, very good um, mixing in with his kicks. Right. And he can do it from short range um, in terms of like, well, not one couple of kicks, of course, but um, he's got different range with his kicks. Right. He can do it where it's a little bit closer. He can do it as uh, in certain transitions of movement from circling one way or the other. He's those go to the body. Um, the Costa Philippu fight is like that. I mean, he's just got such a different command and dexterity with the use of his kicks, both as a decoy or as a finisher or as whatever. He, it's just a really, really complex, interesting game that he has. However, in this case, you're finding Yoel Romero, a guy who's got excellent takedowns. So to what extent will that limit his ability to use those? Um, because Yoel Romero is not really a good wrestler, but he's lightning quick, right? And he can explode into range. Here's the other problem for uh, Luke Rockhold. While he is an excellent fighter, uh, and I wouldn't call him chinny, uh, I don't think that's fair either. I don't necessarily think that I've he's got the sturdiest ability to absorb damage I've ever seen. Um, he is hittable in that regard, and especially when you get somebody who's really, really fast, like Yoel Romero. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he defines the range, because normally you would say, well, keep it a kickboxing range, so he can't really explode in. But then you open yourself up potentially to being taken down, where Yoel Romero uh, um, obviously has a significant ability there. But then you ask, have to ask yourself the question, if he gets, in fact, the takedown, what can you really do with it? What you saw with Robert Whitaker was, Yoel Romero is really good at getting the takedown, and he's got, obviously, a strong uh, tight waist. All right. So that's something, I suppose. However, um, he doesn't really have a good ability in terms of jiu-jitsu to sink the hooks and, uh, you know, really advance position in that way. He's good about holding it and then maybe landing ground and pound, and maybe that'll be enough. So it's this really complex interplay where one guy is clearly more skilled than the other. However the more skilled fighter generally has a certain set of vulnerabilities that the less skilled fighter in this particular case can uniquely take advantage of given the things that he's really, really good at. And how will those two uh, mix together? My hunch is that this is a fight where Luke Rockhold will not risk um, kicking early, but will slowly build into it and make Yoel Romero work, 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 work to the extent that he can and try to keep the range actually a little bit tight to reduce that ability to explode. Um, but it's going to be anybody's guess. It's going to be really, really interesting to see. And I do think he's going to try and make him work to the extent that he can, put him into clinch, even if he gets, even if he loses a round in the process, just to wear him down, because you know by that fifth round, Luke Rockwell won't be nearly as tired as Yoel Romero will be, um, which will be interesting to see. Mm-mm-mm.
Is it possible that Rockhold retires if he loses this fight? I don't think so. Man, you know what's really interesting to me? I, th- I don't know if I talked about this in the tweet on the um, on the live chat last week. It's like every other day there's a headline about someone either threatening to retire or somebody saying they uh, will retire or somebody saying that person should retire or somebody saying I'm going to retire that guy. You don't see a lot of retirement headlines, at least like the way you do in MMA, over in boxing. It's it's bizarre. You hear this all the time. You had Ali Abdelaziz, oh, Tony Ferguson's going to retire. And I don't believe that at all. But I'm just pointing out, you just hear this retirement talk constantly. Uh, and I think it's partly a function of the injury load that everyone suffers in MMA and the fact that they feel like mm, there's not a lot of opportunity maybe for maximizing wealth. I, I'm not exactly sure what it is, but you hear this all the time. I, I don't imagine that he would, but anything's possible, I suppose. Uh People seem to at least entertain the idea way more in MMA than they ever do in boxing. It's kind of crazy, but that's the world we live in, I guess, right? At least the current state of things. Uh, Shevchenko, late stoppage. How are people so riled up about the stoppage in the Shevchenko fight? Well, because there was no stoppage other than Mario Masaki intervening after the tap came. And not even the first tap, the second one. So... I'm not sure exactly which stoppage you're referring to, but it's as if this centers around the sour grapes everyone had towards the Yamasakis already. Uh, are people still butthurt about the Kiesa stoppage and they'll cry about any little thing? Look, I'm sure this person is nice. Let me give you a piece of advice, just generally anyway. Don't ever try to make any argument in public if you want the argument to be taken seriously by anybody Um whose opinion, and I'm I'm not suggesting it's me, but I'm reading this out loud to other people. If you want your opinion to be taken seriously or an argument to be observed in a, in a rational, calm way, don't ever use the word, but hurt. Um, it is a signal, not always, but typically it's a signal right away that you're dealing with somebody who lacks command of not only this issue, but probably any issue. Um, all right. Did these donks even see Habib Ferguson? Habib rode that boy and made him look like a toddler for 15 minutes and ain't nobody crying to have that ref lose his job. Oh, wait. (laughs) Sorry. I wish somebody would... Jesus. I wish somebody made a video and comparing these two people so that people understand these things are better. Oh, wait, you did. Good job on Monday. I thoroughly enjoyed the breakdown. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Also, Steve Mezzagotti is the best referee in the history of refereeing. I don't actually think this, but I was curious as to what you were saying. Something so reprehensible would sound like. And read your questions verbatim. Hilarious. You got me. You were trolling and you got me. Very good. Uh, Someone says, the hypocrisy and double standards of fans and media. Can you imagine the outrage if Cyborg had fought some catchwear in UFC's 145-pound division? Cyborg was and is constantly slammed by fans and some media with the clear intention of diminishing her achievements, dominance, and skills. The two main arguments are, one, she only fights cans, and two, her division is a joke. Well, the two are sort of related, but the Shevchenko versus Cachuera fight was an extreme showcase that fit those same arguments. Compared to Cyborg's opponents in the UFC, Cachuera's level is by far below them, 230 to three strikes. Also, the 125 is no better than the 145. They're both shallow divisions, and they're both Invicta divisions. The big difference is that the 145-pound division still remains an Invicta, and the UFC made a fake champion for the 125-pound division to make it look better. Yet, I didn't see any remarks or negative comments about Shevchenko fighting an amateur-level fighter like the one Cyborg experienced against much better competition, 230-3. to Okay, a couple of points there 
that are worth noting. Number one, um, it deserves to be noted that anytime, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, anytime a division is created where the chief purpose is to accommodate weight cuts, that ultimately will also be its only redeeming value. In other words, if we just create a division, in this case 125, well, you know, there's less weight cutting going on. Okay. Um, well, in some sense, you create some more, but the point being is to eliminate over time the idea, you know, 115, 125, 135, you can more easily uh, find a weight class that is beneficial for you. Um, that's fine if you want to do that, but then you're not necessarily creating division because you believe there is a S load of talent that you can just fill in there. Um, and whenever you do that, you are going to have people who are veterans in the game either come up or drop down, and then you're going to have these other very junior, junior, junior members try and rise to the ranks. So my point being is, whatever you thought of the Shevchenko versus Cachuera fight, it, this is not the last substantial beating you're going to see in this division. Not, not even close. There's going to be another one. It's going to be another senior member from another division who either comes up or drops down, taking on a young upstart who might naturally fit to 125, but uh, they're going to have to face these other senior members. There's not going to be much of a middle class in between, so to speak, to rise through. There's only one rung on the ladder, then a giant gap, and then another rung on the ladder way up top. So that's that. Um, these beatings are far from over. Now, in terms of Cyborg, one of the major differences, though, is that she puts a beating on him so quickly and they fold so quickly that the referee jumps in usually very, very early. There's not a lot of fights of hers that have dragged on. Maybe the second Kunin fight kind of dragged on. Um, but Kunin did enough things, as I mentioned in my Habib, in my comparison between Shevchenko Kachwera and Habib and um, um, uh, Edson Barboza, Edson did a lot of technical things to protect himself. In the end, it wasn't enough. But the, the greater context was he's an A-class fighter versus another A-class fighter. There could be gaps between A-class fighters, but it's not the same kind of categorical gap between an A-class and a B-class. Um, you get a lot of the same categorical um, uh, differences in the cyborg fights. I grant you that that part is true, but it also feels like the referees are on notice, man. They know that when she gets in there, you know, clock's ticking on how long they're going to have to go. And it's usually not very long, Holly Holm fight or whatever, notwithstanding, right? So there's a bit of like referee readiness that I don't think Mario Masaki was necessarily um, in tune with for. Like, I think if you asked him, you know, cyborg fight, how early might you jump in? I think he'd probably argue, well, not too early, but there'd be just this sort of general sense that you got to get in there fast because this probably isn't going to go too long. That's not what you got here. And in part, I think that was exacerbated by the fact that she took it to the ground. There's something about taking it to the ground where they just let ground and pound go in a little bit, not just Mario. Referees let ground and pound go in a certain way that they don't let striking on the feet go, where um, they, you really got to knock someone into unconsciousness or you know a big shot has to land and they have to turn away. And even then, sometimes guys don't jump in. Ground and pound is a recipe for... I would say more fights that could be stopped early aren't in ground and pound scenarios than on the feet. I don't have data to support that. It's just a hunch. But that's another one I have here in mind. Um, you're right. 125 is probably not, at this stage anyway, not a whole lot better than 145. So uh, there's something to be said for that. Um, but I, I just can't think of too many cyborg fights that I felt like dragged on because the referee just let it drag on. They seem to be much her reputation precedes her. And so in some ways that keeps their opponent, her opponent safer. Uh, now we know that 
Shevchenko has a reputation, but not necessarily as this like marauding destroyer. And so I think that kind of hurt her there a little bit. Uh, no doubt about it. By the way, good job on the trolling. That was very funny. But the last one I want to make about this, if you didn't see the Monday Morning Analytics, I'll link it up um, after the, at the end of this chat on the video. The major point I made was not really about Habib and um, Edson, but it's about when you're looking at Cachoeira and you're watching her and what she does in the fights, or excuse me, in the rounds, what you begin to notice is that and this is a hard thing to do, man. It's hard because you're the referee. You're watching and you're looking for, you know, are the eyes rolling in the back of her head, or, um, you know, is she trying to move? And, and what do those movements tell me? And, you know, how much is too much blood? And, and it, there's, there's, you have, there's so many things that you have to do um, to figure out and, and make an evaluation. It's hard. It's really hard. It reminds me of being a quarterback in the NFL. I made this point before. Everyone says the hardest thing to do in sports is bat 300 in the majors. And maybe that's true, but I don't know. I feel like in terms of positions to play in sports, I can't think of a harder one than being a quarterback in the NFL. You've just got gobs of quarterbacks at the collegiate level. There's only 32 NFL teams, and trust me when I tell you, there are not 32 good quarterbacks in, in, in all of football, American football. It's a very difficult position to play. You know, Kirk Cousins is like, okay, and he's like the 12th best quarterback on earth. I realize the rest of the world doesn't play it, but I'm just saying, I mean, good Lord, it's a hard position to play. Um, I feel like referees a little bit like that where, you know, you can be the 10th best referee and, uh, you know, you, there's a lot of bad things that happen when you're the 10th best referee, but th that's literally how hard it is to do. But for me, when I watched her, she was doing a lot of things that you just never do. You just never do. And I realized when you're taking a beat down, it can change your thought process. But senior fighters, a, senior A-class fighters just don't make the same kinds of mistakes where, you know, you always have to do jujitsu. You have to think there's a line down your body. You never, there are some circumstances where this isn't true, but you never want to let your arm go across this invisible line. She was doing it the whole time. She was just rotating her hips side to side. She wasn't ever bucking and trying to shrimp or take the outside leg and her grab over and then pull Shevchenko and then slide a knee. She never biceps frame. She never did anything, anything. And to me, when you're watching someone get beat down, that they're moving is irrelevant. Are they moving in, with some kind of intelligent, educated, rehearsed, understood defense? Was it a technical defense? You could say what you want about the beatdown that Edson took, but he was firing underhooks. He was getting his base under him. He was trying to stand. You know, He was creating frames. He was trying to get full guard. He was trying to do a bunch of different things, again, to you know, a variety of different successes, but that's intelligent defense. That's why that fight continued. This was just, uh, it was like somebody was, they pulled him off the street. And I'm sure she's better than what she showed. Again, you can collapse under the pressure sometimes, but uh, yeah, that that to me was the big, the big issue. All right, wrestling and MMA. Hi, Luke. Been watching MMA for years and I'm pretty well versed in most styles of fighting. But being from Ireland, we are not really exposed to much amateur wrestling, if at all. This is true. I've tried to look up stuff on YouTube, but can never really find decent videos. Oh man, are you kidding? There's so many good wrestling videos on YouTube. Now, I'm, I'm sure that that's partly a function of the fact that you're not exactly sure what to look for, which is okay. But take my word for it. Keep digging. There's a ton of good wrestling videos on YouTube. Uh, would you briefly be able to explain the main differences in the various styles of wrestling, e.g. E freestyle, Greco, Roman, folk style, which I believe is the same as collegiate, correct? 
What do you think is the best style that can be adapted to MMA? Thanks for all your content from Ireland. All right. Someone has a really good post here. I'll just read what they write. But basically, folk style is, uh, I think, is the best one for MMA. It's, it has a lot of um, leg rides, a lot of, um, a lot of work from common positions in MMA. We've talked about referees' position in MMA. Um, just a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of extra um, uh, wrist control from riding positions from the back. A lot of scrambling. Um, a lot of times in freestyle wrestling, you'll see guys belly out. That's where you see a lot of leg laces and gut wrenches, but you see a lot of guys belly out. You don't have the same kind of scrambling on the mats that you do. Um, you also get a lot of points for, not a lot of points, but push outs are a bigger point, are a bigger issue in freestyle wrestling, which really has no relevancy um, to MMA. It's just there's a lot of things in terms of that um, intertwined hip leg rides from turtle, we would call turtle anyway. Uh, a lot of risk control, a lot of a lot of ways to break down an opponent who's trying to create a structure to stand. It just has a lot of a lot more transference. Uh, but this person writes folk style, American high school and collegiate styles, no clasping of the hands, which we talked about a lot, uh, unless going to a pinning combination, allowed to attack the upper body and lower body. Correct. So you can do you can do a double um, if you have if you have double underhooks. You can do a sacrifice throw. You can do a lot. Right. Greco, no leg attacks or attacking the legs strictly upper body. That's what Joe Warren would do. You'd see them, they get up and they get in a 50-50 grip. One underhook, one overhook, and a lot, a lot that happens from there, right? Freestyle, basically folk style, but you're allowed to clasp the hands, more leniency. You see a lot of belly outs uh, on what they call, is position called parterre. You can look that up. It's a French term. Um, and then you'll see a lot of push outs that score points as well. And then someone says, this is a super simplified explanation. These rules and scoring are all different. In freestyle and Greco, you'll find bottom guys flattening out to avoid a gut wrench which scores points. In folk style, you'll see a lot of guys get on their hands and knees to try and scramble to get away and reverse position. You also find a lot of, uh, you get a points for an escape. Jordan Burroughs, when he was wrestling at Nebraska, hit the scores would be really interesting for his for his uh, matches. You'd see something like 17 to 6. You'd be like, well, how did this guy get six points on Jordan Burroughs? Well, because he would just double leg them into living death and then just let him up. And they would get a point here and a point there and a point there. He wouldn't really do a lot of what they call mat wrestling. Now, he got better for, with that as time went on, although it's still not his specialty. But um, so you, you, it wouldn't be like if he, if he wanted to, could he have won 10 or 15 to nothing? Probably. But he could just accumulate so many points through double legs, he would just let them up. So they would accrue points on the other side. Uh, let's see. And then someone says, this is a nice little breakdown. So if you want to see it, you can check that out in the comments. Appreciate everyone getting involved here. Someone says, folk style is the best because it's the only one that emphasizes any ground fighting. Right. You can look at parterre where they belly out like this and they try to roll them and get points. In terms of top guy having to keep the bottom guy down and the bottom guy getting up, the other styles don't reward riding. They give time to go for leg laces or other pinning combos, but that's about it. I'd look for Big Ten NCAA wrestling if you're curious to watch matches. Um, you can check out uh, Colot Wrestling, K-O-L-A-T. He's got a lot of explanations about doubles, sweep singles. Um, BJJ Scout has some good stuff on Ben Askren. And his funk style. Who's got some other really good ones? Um, the guy who runs the company is a is a clown, but to their credit, Flow Wrestling has a lot of good information if you're willing to pay for it. Uh, what else do we have out there? Um, just look up old wrestling matches. Try to hear people explain it. Um, uh, I did an old interview with uh, God, who uh, Jeff Blatnick that you can check out on my YouTube channel. Uh, that had a lot of interesting stuff on it and, and explanations of how folk style would be good for MMA. Um, there's a lot out there. Just keep digging, keep digging, keep digging. I promise you'll find it. All right. 
Good question. Tyron Woodley versus Nate Diaz. Diaz has teased that he's returning, and Woodley claims he is in talks for a fight against Nate Diaz. Do you find this likely? I find it likely. I mean, that's not whether I find it dismaying, but I find it likely. What do you think of this matchup versus the other matchups available for Woodley and Diaz, both as a fight and in the broader picture of welterweight and lightweight divisions? So, I mean, I really hate this idea in every in every way. Um, let me pull up the rankings here just to make my point a little bit more effectively if I can. All right. So, this is real simple. Now, if they get their way, and maybe they're doing this because one of those is going to fall through, but remember what we've been told. We've been told that there's a strong likelihood that what the UFC wants, and we know they're going to do one of these, DC versus Stipe at UFC 226. Um, I spoke to TJ Dillashaw this week. He's telling me he is almost surely convinced that that fight in July against Demetrius Johnson is going to happen. I mean, nothing official yet, but everything's moving in the right direction is what he told me. So let's say, let's postulate that that will happen. Uh, then we are told that Cyborg versus Amanda Nunez might happen there as well. Okay. That sounds interesting, right? Um, what, what can we infer from all of this? Well, that would be six divisions, five and a half, involved in one month. That would be, what, July 7th? Now you're hearing Tyron Woodley. Let's take him at his word. I do not believe him to be a dishonest man in any way. Tyron Woodley is saying that the Diaz fight might happen uh, also in July. Now, I don't know if that's happening because they might just move to the Cyborg fight to the to the Rio card or not, but let's assume that everything might be happening in that month. So let's let's add this up. Women's bantamweight, women's featherweight, men's flyweight, men's bantamweight, men's, and there's only one, but light heavyweight, heavyweight, and now welterweight in a potential 21-day span. Um, <laughs> that seems like a really bad idea, like a really bad idea. You know, it's one thing to make a champ versus champ fight. It's another thing to make a champ versus champ fight, uh, with a card full of them, three of them. It's yet another thing, pardon me, to make a champ versus champ fight or three of them on one card and then have it telegraphed where, you know, it's not going to happen until July, six months from now, basically, five months. Um, it's yet even another thing to say we're going to do that. And then in the same month, put another title fight and just hope that our cards before that and after that hold up with no injury so that we can make this happen. I mean, you can have an evaluation about whether champs should be fighting champs. And then another one about whether how many of those you should put on a card. And then another one about how many of those you should put uh, an, on a card far away. And then another one about, on top of that, uh, adding another welterweight contest to the mix. And then on top of that, how are you going to manage in a sport where the injury rate is extraordinary? I mean, it seems to me like, the, I, I don't know how anyone can think this is a good idea. I just don't get it. You know, we can debate all day long about whether a champ should fight a champ. I can live with them doing just one of these. I really can. I can, I, I can just say, okay, fine. But it sounds to me like that J July, it might be a lot of fun. Did you see what happened to UFC 222? They don't have a main event yet. They might have to cancel the pay-per-view. I mean, here is the reality of this. And I've been saying that before. I'm going to keep saying it, and I'm going to keep beating this drum because it's true. Every decision that this company is making about how they structure these big, bigger events or um, revenue generation more generally, 
is a function of them having to service a debt load, right? This is just the reality of things. And if they can do that in a meritocratic way, I suppose that they will. But if they have to do that by abandoning a meritocratic process, they also will. What on earth could be the argument meritocratically for giving Nate Diaz a title shot? There isn't one. There literally is none. It's not possible to make that argument. Look at the welterweight rankings. Number one is Stephen Thompson. I get that no one's clamoring to see that. But then below that, you have Rafael Dos Anjos. Rafael Dos Anjos beat Nate Diaz from pillar to post, albeit at lightweight, but cleanly, easily. And I know Diaz had some other circumstances heading into that contest, both with injury as well as a, uh, you know, an issue with the company. But okay, that was not any kind of controversial win, generally speaking. Uh, and is coming off of a year where he was considered fighter of the year. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, look at who Rafael Dos Anjos has had to fight, and he would just get leapfrogged? I mean, I don't have anything but nice things to say about Nate Diaz, and I don't blame Tyron Woodley, and I don't blame Nate Diaz. If these guys get offered these opportunities, what am I supposed to say? You're not going to, you shouldn't take an opportunity that's pretty clearly in your best interest. I mean, th this is not about telling those guys how to live their life, it's about trying to understand what could be the thought process here other than we are nakedly going to abandon a sustainable architecture in the name of um, short-term revenue generation. It's as simple as that. There's really, what could possibly be the explanation other than that? There is none. There is none. That You want that to be your defining principle? That seems to me like an awfully bad idea. And I keep asking people, people are saying, well, we're moving away from a world where you know, the divisions are what matter the most and creating contenders and we're, we're, we're establishing a new order. I am perfectly willing to believe that we are moving away from that into something else. But what I fail to understand, because no one can seem to explain it to me, is how this new order is A, better, uh, and two, sustainable in the long run. When the novelty of chant versus chant wears off, then what are you going to do? And when the novelty and, and, and when the, you create this malaise for fighters who are out there, in, like Javier Dos Anjos has been in the trenches and you're just going to go around this guy. I mean, this is a this is terrible. This is terrible. Um, I mean, no, I am not a fan of this in any capacity whatsoever. So I, someone needs to explain, make make the case that we have not only a new order, but that this new order is a better order and that this new order is equally sustainable. Because I don't understand the argument for it. The only argument that I can see is that we're doing this because we got bills to pay. I, I can't. I cannot fathom another reason why you could even conceive of an idea for Nate Diaz, who again is not. People are like, oh, he's terrible at welterweight. Well, he's not terrible at welterweight. He's three and three, I believe, and two of those are Connor fights. But okay, then he's two and two, and there was a difference between the two wins and the two losses in terms of the quality of opposition. I don't think it's his optimal weight class. They don't think it's like a terrible place, but put that aside for just a moment. Like, where's he ranked at welterweight? He's not. He's not. What are we doing, folks? I, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't support this in any capacity whatsoever. None, none. Because here's what is increasingly becoming true. A big fight like this gets announced, and we're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be a fun night on that night. And then slowly over time, there is this there is this creeping, not even revelation, this uh, series of revelations that shows 
uh, all the many problems with this kind of a strategy. Um, where are the big fights in May? Where are the big fights in June? Right? You could say, oh, it could be TJ versus DJ, right? But they're going to put that, it looks like, in July. So that's not going to be that. Now, maybe they'll move the cyborg fight, but then they're going to put the Woodley fight, it appears, in July. What are you going to do in August? What are you going to do in September? Uh, I, not a fan. Not a fan even a little bit. And I don't understand how this is better, and I don't understand how this is sustainable at all. A good one, Super Bowl 52. I'll see the Philly fan eating horse manure. I mean, I love how there's so many Philly fans being like, oh, we're unfairly maligned. No, no, you're not. You, you, people's understanding of you appears to be totally on the money. Y'all are some horse manure eating, <laughs> just diggity donks up there in Philly. I will say Nick Foles is pretty amazing. Uh, Rory GSP Woodley Askren compete in a four-man welterweight tournament this year. Who wins? All right, Rory GSP Woodley and Askren. Well, it depends how you would structure the tournament. Uh, so let's say you did GSP Askren and then Woodley Rory. I would. I think you'd end up with. Well, if you did that, you'd end up with Rory GSP, potentially Rory versus Askren. You could do Woodley GSP and then Askren Rory, in which case I might like Askren's chances. Uh, and then against GSP, but then that's a tough one. It, it really would depend how you structure the brackets. But I think Askren would do a lot better than people think, and I think Woodley would do a lot better than people think. But Rory's still out there, obviously. Um, my big takeaway from Rory's career has been a kind of like, I mean, I understood it to begin with, but I didn't really, I don't know, I didn't I didn't love it at first. And I still don't love it, but GSP was like, there was a moment there, I, I made this point before, like, look at the Dan Hardy fight, fight, fight. Dan Hardy was a very good fighter, but what I didn't think that relative to the skills that St. Pierre had, that he was necessarily a threat from guard for him. Not no threat, but not 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 enough of a threat to not engage in more ground and pound than he did. Especially for a guy like St. Pierre, who's got very good and well-timed positionally competent ground and pound. And um, so I thought he was risk averse for a time. And I, and I think there's a lot of, I, th I don't see how you can argue that's not true. It pretty clearly is true. But the question is, you know, how smart is that? And in the end, probably pretty smart because if you're St. Pierre and you're fighting these number one contenders all the time, for the most part, anyway, at welterweight, man, they, if you try and fight them under any terms other than what he did, the amount of damage you're going to take is going to be extraordinary. Extraordinary. Look at Rory McDonald. Very talented guy. And he does wrestle them a little bit. More than a little bit. Like a, a decent amount now. But to the extent that you exchange with these guys on the feet, man, you, you cannot fight the Douglas Limas of the world and the Paul Daly's or the, the prime Tiago Alves's and the John Fitch's and, again, prime BJ Penn's and the Sean Shirks and whoever else and the Jay Hurons and everybody else without just getting lit on fire eventually. So I kind of get it that he wrestled as much as he did in the later stages of his career. Um, uh, I, there's no way to get through that wood chipper unscathed. It's not possible. Might as well wrestle as much as you can and limit the amount of damage. UFC 222 main event. After Holloway had to pull out, there has been a lot of speculation about what UFC will do with the UFC 222 main event spot. 
Edgar versus Ortega, Edgar versus Nate Diaz, or even Garbrandt versus Dillashaw, too. A cancellation of the whole card has also been mentioned. What do you think the UFC will do? What would you prefer? I think what I would do is actually what they – what I prefer is what I think they will do. I don't think they'll cancel it. Um, I think that they're going to make it a fight night and then have Edgar Ortega as a five-round non-interim title main event, which I think is absolutely the right call. In fact, I was somewhat heartened by the idea that they weren't, or at least for now – going to create an interim title around this. Uh, I was actually worried when this happened. I was like, are they really going to create an interim title when Max Holloway pulls out for the first time? And it doesn't appear he's going to be out. We don't have exactly a timeline, but from what we understand, it's not going to be out. He's not going to be out too long. To create an interim title there would be insane, completely insane. It wouldn't be the first insane thing that's happened, but you get the idea. So to me, that they're not going to create this, I thought, wow, that's a great idea. Okay, that's good. Moreover, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the relationship is with Fox anymore. It's hard to know if they're tanking on that Fox series. But in the negotiation year, not the worst thing in the world to put what I would consider to be at this point. If they have Edgar Ortega as a main event, a pretty good fight night card. You've got uh, on presumably on FS1, you'll have Sukmatat versus Sean O'Malley. That's big. On FS1, the debut of Mackenzie Dern. On FS1, the return of Kat Zingano for a co-main event. I don't think anything's wrong with Arlovsky versus Struve. And then in your main event, you'd have Frank Yeager versus Brian Ortega. Yeah, man, that's a solid card, super solid card. So I think it'd be a win for Fox. I think in the short run, short, short term, it would be a loss for the UFC, but um, it'd be a win for the fans. And it would be, I think, uh, the right short-term L to preserve a larger-term uh, picture. So I think that's what they're probably going to end up doing, canceling and then just moving everything else. That wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because then all those things would move to you know nearby cards and they would boost them up a little bit. So I wouldn't hate that either. Um, but my sense is that they're going to go forward with it and just make it a five-round fight because obviously uh, Dillashaw has made it pretty clear this is not going to happen. You just go down the line of who's available. I mean, let's, just, let's go through it, right? For some reason, they can't get Amanda Nunes to fight Cyborg. And who else would Cyborg fight as a main event at this point? The clock's ticking. You're not going to be able to do that, right? So then um, those two divisions are gone. Women's flyweight, Nico Montano. I don't know what's happening there. Strawweight, that's already booked. Rose Namajunas is going to rematch um, uh, and Jacek uh, in April. So that's the women's divisions. Let's go through the men's. TJ DJ, 125, 135. That looks like it's being set up for July. 145 is the one we're talking about here, but you can't create an interim title because Max, it would just be so re absurdly unfair to Max Holloway. 155, whatever the F is going on there, that'll at least be somewhat resolved by April. Uh, welterweight, Tyron Woodley, I suppose, is available, but maybe not in four weeks' notice because shoulder surgery and rehabilitation is complicated. 185, being settled this weekend in Perth, Australia, and then heavyweight and light heavyweight set up down the line for um, July. Where's it going to come from? So to me, this one's a pretty straight, straightforward call. Get Make it a five-rounder, put it on FS1, take the L, and then move forward. Easy for me to say. Remember, all decisions that they make are in this greater context of servicing a debt load. So I wouldn't rule out cancellation, but the right call is the one that I would like to see, I think. Make it a fight night. Make it a great fight night. And let's have a, let's have a, like, don't you guys want to look forward to like a big stacked card? Right? I mean, I, they feel so infrequent now that you're just, I, the fans, I think, would really appreciate it. I think it would really. I think it would do good ratings. I think it would do really good ratings. Football's done. College football's done. I mean, I realize the NBA's in full swing, but 
um, not as much competition and hockey's whatever. Baseball doesn't start till what uh, March, uh, but like the uh, the end of March, and that, even that's just spring training. So, yeah, man, let's do it. We can do it. Someone says Cody versus Edgar is a possibility as well. I don't like that fight for Edgar at all. Uh, you're gonna risk at least if you. Any fight he takes from here is a risk, but you're going to risk fighting a guy who's not even in your weight class and lose out on a title shot. And I realize if he loses to Ortega, it's the same thing, but I kind of like the matchup for him versus Ortega. I kind of like it against Garbrandt as well, just given the size disparity. Um, uh, um, but I think there's a little bit more of a, of a striking threat probably with Cody, at least early, uh, given the power. And I think it will translate up a weight class. I, I just don't, I don't really like that fight. And I don't, and I, and I don't think Cody's first fight back, again, just speaking personally, I'm not advising his career, but personally, I think he should get back to it at Bantamweight. There's a lot of work to be done at Bantamweight, man. There's a lot of good guys up there that all need to kind of sort things out a little bit. You know, let's make a Marlon Marais versus Cody Garbrandt fight before we make a Cody Garbrandt versus Frankie Edgar fight. Let's keep things. People are wanting to see this world where we just break down the barriers. Right. There's these walls between worlds, right? There's this middleweight world and then this light heavyweight and this heavyweight world. What if we just collapse all the walls? But and that sounds fun at first, but I think that novelty will wear off. And I believe that again, some wall jumping over time is is good, right? Rigid adherence to it over time becomes um uh, you know, I think it, it, it inhibits growth. But having Having some loyalty to that rigidity, some loyalty to it, I think that gives it gives it purpose and meaning and um, and long term stability. But I've heard I've said it a thousand times at this point. Ooh, good question. Two failed drug tests. Whose legacy is hurt more, John Jones or Anderson Silva? All right, Here, this person asks. Silva style is based on finesse, not brutal power. Sort of. And his body never went through any Vitor Belfort-like changes. However, suspiciously, his peak came late during his mid-30s. Y'all think that's not suspicious that his peak came after 30 and, and 35, 36, 37 even? He was out there competing with the best? I mean, if that's not a red flag, nothing is. You're, not everyone responds to certain PEDs the same way. Some people can really genetically and from a sort of a hypertrophic standpoint, in terms of like muscle growth, um, they can really benefit from it. Not everyone benefits the same way. How many times have we seen somebody pop for something and you would look at them and you're like, that person was on steroids? Not everyone's body responds the same way. Jones seems to have done a better job absolving himself of intentional wrongdoing. Yet his post-powerlifting physique easily lends itself to PED accusations. Yeah, stupid ones. Um, I'm, I'm not suggesting that um, there aren't arguments to be made that he was using... Um, and we'll see, again, we don't know the cases. We haven't heard his side of the story. We'll see what happens with this current situation that he's in. But like that, you know, that he had, that he was naturally good at powerlifting and that he naturally packed on a ton of muscle in the process, uh, even lean muscle mass, you know, I, I don't, I don't find this particularly, I've seen guys in powerlifting on roids and they don't look anything like that. Um, who looks more guilty here and whose reputation is damaged more? Will any of this actually matter in 15 years? The Bonds-McGuire-Sosa home run race still defines an era in baseball despite steroid use. Well, I take the long view on this one. You can look at the 28 Russian athletes who were uh, exonerated to an extent anyway, just in terms of the, what do you want to say, 
in the court of uh, the CAS, the Court of Arbitration of Sport, there were 28 athletes from Russia who were believed to be involved in doping. And the Court of Arbitration of Sport um, essentially said that there isn't sufficient evidence. There isn't a preponderance of evidence, basically, to suggest that they that that banning was justified. The IOC has resisted that now, which I'm assuming is going to open them up to litigation. Although at this point, the game start in two days or yeah, two days. So God knows what will happen. But um, but if you're not out there paying attention, there is. You can guys keep saying it's me. It's not me. I'm taking the long view on this one. Two basic major arguments about this. You can make a case, number one, that sports are better with PEDs. And I'm sure a lot of you don't agree, but I think that the long view will uh, will um, come around to that idea. And then the other problem, which I think a lot of people are coming around to, is that the current anti-doping system, whatever you want to make of the value of anti-doping, is deeply, deeply flawed and insufficient. And frankly, what can you reasonably do with an anti-doping system? How much can you actually deter it? How much can you actually catch it? Maybe there's a different way to handle some of these things where you take a more medicinal view of this. Um, uh, there's a debate to be had about it, but whatever the benefits of the current system, it do, it clearly doesn't work at all, uh, or very, very little anyway, right? Um, I don't think MMA fighters are that good at taking PEDs yet, so you still see a lot of these guys get caught very easily that you don't see in other sports, um, and I think that'll eventually over time fix itself. I think you'll see a lot of MMA fighters just get better at it through um, um, the need to. Uh, but you're asking about John and Anderson. I think it really comes down to this. Number one, it will depend on your view on this. You might completely disagree with me and say um, steroids are the biggest cancer in all of sports. And you might say that the anti-doping system is incredibly effective, right? So let's say you take that position. If you take that position, you have a bit of a choice to make about what you want to say about Anderson because a lot of those tests happen at the very, very end of his career. Um, none of them happened. Those testing at this current level didn't exist back then, but you merely would be speculating about what was happening prior to that. With the John case, Jones case, anyway, you would at least say, well, it happened sort of during the middle of his career rather than the end. And I think that might always taint the perception of things more. Plus, you know, John has had a number of indiscretions outside of the cage. And then when you add this to it, it just creates this larger picture of an inability to manage his affairs, you know, to, to, uh, in, a, in a very effective way. Um, so I think in the end, it won't damage Silva as much, but what I also think is over time, um, there just really aren't strong arguments to make. I, I know this sounds hard to believe. There just aren't strong arguments to make that anti-doping is working. And there are not strong arguments to make that over time policing this is an effective way to govern sport. Um, and there's a question to be asked about what kind of use should be allowed, um, on on uh, either medicinal or other recreational grounds, and I think I think as it dawns on people that we're not winning this war, <laughs> it's not it's it's not working. Um, I know I'm the only guy out there that's really saying this for now, at least in MMA. I'm not the only guy saying this out there in sport. Um, it, it it's not working. It's not working, and it's it's not working because it can't. At least not in the current system. It cannot work, and it won't. And so you have to ask yourself what kind of system has to be put in place to get to a more um, a system that works, at least in its intended aims, because this one doesn't. You have the point now where you're having literal international relations problem because we could say, well, Russia got caught. <laughs> you think this is the end of it? Another nation is probably doing the exact same thing right now, maybe even ours. Um, if not as bad, they'll try. Um, there's all it, it, there is so much cheating going on right now. It's out of control. And um, that will continue. 
it will continue because it's easy to continue. And the everyone wants to say that um, if you up the number of penalties and you let's ban more people for a lifetime and let's ban more people for four years, you will deplete the roster, which will make uh, watching sports less interesting over time. Um, you'll be getting rid of people who that people ultimately want to see. You're going to get people involved who really should not be involved. Um, there's going to be a lot of uh, collateral damage in the process. You're going to sort of hurt what makes sport interesting to begin with. Um, and th this, this, I don't know what will happen with anti-doping, but the current system will go away because it is a relic of the war on drugs. And when you begin to realize and make that, uh, that connection, um, then you begin to see this really for what it is. It's got nothing to do with integrity of sport. Very, very little to do with it anyway. It's it, this is this is a holdover. This is a reefer madness meets the war on drugs. That's what it is in sport. And the sooner you wake up to that, the sooner you can create a real anti-doping system that has some value and can actually work. How the hell is Yoel Romero 40 years old? He's a genetic freak. Yoel Romero is 40 years old, and I think you can make a strong argument that he is in his prime. No, he's not in his prime. You should look at him from his wrestling days. That was his prime. But he's so athletic that at 40, you still kind of feel like it. Usually fighters who reach this age in fighting, even if they reach it, are either barely hanging on or looking like they are on the path to an exit. Romero shows no signs of slowing down. And I think this impressive. This is impressive considering he's a middleweight and not a heavyweight. Do you attribute this largely to Romero being a freak of nature? Yes. If so, when do you roughly estimate he will start to hit a decline? Hard to say. You might see it in this fight. Um, anything over 40, you begin to be clocks ticking, right? There's not many athletes who are competing at a high level by 50. Right? So you have to imagine that by 40, um, while his exit is maybe not imminent, it's not far away either. But we'll just have to see. If you think his age is starting to catch up with him, then which of the two X factors are more key for the UC 21 main event, Romero's age or Rockhold choking? Ooh. I would say the ability for Rockhold to get caught is probably a more existential threat in this case, but that's debatable. And someone says HGH is a hell of a drug. This is the best part about it. It's like USADA is going to get these guys. Didn't get him. You could say, oh, well, it did get him. You mean when it exonerated him and said that they independently found, they didn't test the bottle he gave them. They went and found in that company. They're independent. They got their own supply of it and tested it and exonerated him. Uh, and since then, haven't been able to do anything with it. So either you, so what you're basically telling me is I'm right and that USADA doesn't work, which I don't think is what you want to say, but that's what you're saying if you believe that he's been on drugs this whole time because it didn't just start getting internationally tested. He's been internationally tested for a very long time. Stipe and DC agreement negotiating tactic. Recently, DC told reporters that he called Stipe prior to the negotiations so that they could get the most out of their contract for their upcoming fight. What do you make of it? Sounds pretty smart. <laughs> Sounds pretty smart. Um, will we see more fighters do the same? You'll see more smart fighters do the same. Or is it just a handful of fighters who have that kind of pull? Partly it's just the circumstance. They knew the UFC was leaning on them for something big, and they were smart enough, both of them, to recognize that. And it was smart of them. They both, they both realized the UFC needed something out of both of them. And then they both realized, look, if we do this together and we act in concert, um, we can get something out of this. I wouldn't, this doesn't match the, what I would call the prisoner's dilemma, where the prison, you guys know what the prisoner's dilemma is? Some of you might know this. The prisoner's dilemma, imagine a scenario where you and your friend rob a bank, right? 
and uh, the police catch you because you're idiots, and then they uh, separate you. Now, here's the truth. If neither of you confess to the crime, they actually don't have enough evidence to convict you. They have to let you walk. But because you're separated, you can't figure out, um, you can't plan that. And then what they tell you is, if you drop dimes on your friend, we'll give you, uh, we'll let you walk or we'll give you a reduced suspension. So now you're in this position where, um, or even if you had planned ahead of time to say that we're not going to talk, now they're threatening you. If you drop dimes on him, we'll take care of you. And they're telling him, if you drop dimes on him, we'll take care of you. But if neither of you say anything, you both get off scot Scott free. So what do you do? It's called a prisoner's dilemma. And uh, this isn't exactly like that, but they both really, like Daniel was realized like, like, you know, if I, I can take care of myself, but am I going to get as much uh, without working in concert? The point being is they, they colluded ahead of time to say, we're going to stick to this plan as if in the, in the prisoner's dilemma, they both agreed, we're going to stick to this plan. And as a consequence, uh, because they couldn't leverage one against the other uh, or because they put up a united front, uh, again, this is why it doesn't really exactly, it's not exactly the prisoner's dilemma, but if they put up a united front, they could more effectively achieve their ends for mutual gain. Um, and so I think it's smart. I think it's smart. Um, these guys don't have much leverage. Use what you have. Use what you have. Uh, teep kicks. Why aren't teep kicks used more in today's MMA strictly to avoid giving up the takedown? I think... Um, well, I don't know how much they've diminished. I don't know how much data there is to that. But Leota Machida had some. I think you're seeing more, like, rather than push kicks to just shove a guy back, you're just seeing a little bit more innovative use where guys are putting the ball of the of the foot on the rib or ball of the foot on the gut, you know? They're just doing things where you're kind of establishing distance, but you're more just worried about damage. A lot of teep kicks are just designed to back somebody up. And they're not – I mean, that's not totally true. It's, I want to be very clear about this. Some of them absolutely have damage designed in mind, but a lot of them don't. And I think we're just sort of getting away from that. Guys are getting better at boxing, so they're, they don't need to like have this major reset in the course of it. And I think the other part is I mentioned before, you're going to MMA gyms and you're seeing, you know, some of the older ones are like, yeah, we train jujitsu and wrestling and Muay Thai. And jujitsu is still, even in the gi, a big part because it's such a participatory sport. But you're seeing the better gyms, they just train like striking. They don't train like Muay Thai where all the bowing and then like the, you know, they're, they're doing this sort of this pre-match rituals that are borrowing from Thai culture. Can't wait till somebody, by the way, accuses somebody else of in, in Muay Thai of cultural appropriation. That's all Muay Thai is in America, is cultural appropriation. Of course, the fact of the matter is that it's good for Muay Thai for it to be appropriated in that, in that way. But I'm just, I'm just amazed that nobody has accused anybody else of doing this yet. Whatever. I guess because the people who are uh, in love with making those accusations just don't know anything and have no relationship to the fighting world, which is better for us. But point being is um, that is a cultural tradition that has a lot of value in terms of a uh, applicable fighting sport. But I think as time goes on, there have just been some of those things. I'm not saying teep kicks don't have value either as a damage or distance creator. But as guys begin to incorporate other elements and their hands get better and their takedown defense gets better, um, do you really need this major resetting motion in the same way you did before? Probably not. Probably not. But you still see him some a little bit. So um, you know who used to have a great one was um, um, Sammy Schilt. Women's flyweight and what it means to be a UFC-level fighter. Luke, what the heck is the UFC doing with this division? Nico Montano went pro in November of 2015, got a shot on tough, 
with a three and two record, and now she's a UFC champion. Yeah, not for long though. Uh, I cannot pronounce this name. Maya Stevenson, I'll just say, had a six and four record going into this weekend. Incredibly, the five women she had beaten have a combined record of zero and seventeen. That is a true thing. Cachuela was a plus six hundred underdog leading up to her fight against Shevchenko, and it showed. She had no business being in there. It all seems incredibly mismanaged, and I think the promotion is really damaging the old idea that it means something to be a UFC-level fighter. Going forward with this division, what do you see happening? Shevchenko murdering a few more girls until Joanna decides to move up, and then we'd all have a real championship fight. Yeah, yeah. this is another reason. Now, this will be, a, I don't think, 165 if they created a men's division and then made 170-175. I don't think those divisions would be as bad as this. But this is why I am absolutely against a 165-pound division. If you create a division to accommodate weight cuts, that becomes not merely the history of how the division was created, but it's only redeeming value. It has very, 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 very little promotional value whatsoever. And I can tell you, I know some people at the UFC did not want to do this. They did not want to do this to create a 125-pound division. There just aren't people to staff it at any kind of, and I, I, you call it UFC level. I call it the common standard of excellence, right? An A-class fighter. If you lift, if you go to watch international weightlifting, there are A-class lifters. If you go to judo, there are A-class judokas. Even racquetball, there are A-class players, right? And then there's B and C and D. Think about in jujitsu. You can be a big difference between your local black belt and an international class black belt, but they're, they're, that's a black belt. And look, presuming that the local one earned it, they, you know, that's, that's a real thing. And there can be a disparity, but they've, they have worked their way through the mastery of the skill to achieve a certain designation. That's not what's happening here, man. That is, you do not have, you would, how many A-class fighters currently exist at women's flyweight? Not many. Not many. And you, you, it should be a given that all of them are A-class. Because let me read you the, let me read you the rankings for men's lightweight. My judgment, the best division in, in the sport. Champion, Conor McGregor, A-class talent. Tony Ferguson, interim champion, A-class. Habib Nurmagomedov, A-class. Eddie Alvarez, A-class. Barboza, Poirier, Gaethje, Kevin Lee, Michael Chiesa, Al Iaquinta, that's the top 10. All A-class fighters. Benil Dariush is 11. James Vick, 12. Anthony Pettis, 13. Masarenduba, 14. And Evan Dunham. These are all A-class fighters without a shadow of a doubt. Jesus Christ, you could probably go to the top 50 and they might all be A-class fighters, right? That's what you need. That's what you need. And what defines an A-class fighter is a little bit of a, a trickier debate to have. But, you know, it's the pornography test according to the Supreme Court. You know it when you're looking at it in this particular case. Easily. Here's women's, let me read you women's uh, flyweight, right? Here's women's flyweight. Nico Montano, Sajora Eubanks, Lauren Murphy, Alexis Davis, Roxanne Modafferi, Barb Honchak, Liz Carmouche, Caitlin Chukagian. And these are all people who have moved from certain divisions, by the way. Jessica Rose Clark, Jessica I, Montana De La Rosa, Mara Romera Bora Borella, Rachel Ostovich, Paige Van Zant, Shayna Dobson, and then Jillian Robertson. How many A-class fighters in there? Five, if you're being generous. Right? Not many, not many. Um, but people keep wanting to create divisions to accommodate weight cuts. What a terrible idea, terrible idea. 
The sport at some point, the sport needs certain conditions to thrive. This is a spectator sport. It's a spectator sport. It is supposed to provide some degree of entertainment value. And that means you have to establish certain conditions to keep that in play. This is the opposite of how you do that. Uh, CM Punk to fight at UFC 225. Your reactions. Both CM Punk and his coach, Duke Rufus, dropped some heavy hints that CM Punk is fighting on the UFC 225 pay-per-view card in Chicago. Your reactions to this. Well, he should have never been signed to begin with. I'm sure he is a lovely person. Um, he's been very kind to MMA fighting, which I appreciate. I don't have anything personal to say about him bad. In fact, I said it last time, and I'll say it again. The guy went through and and earned his blue belt, and I, I know some people laugh and say that's nothing. It's not nothing. The guy got out there on the mats for years. That's how long it took him, a couple of years, if not more, strapping on the gi, night after night, getting beat on and beat up, and probably has handed out a few ass whoopings of himself, by the way, because that's how it's going to go. Um, it's not nothing. It is something, and I absolutely commend him for that. I don't think that's anything small whatsoever, and he should be applauded for that because he didn't have to, and he did. However, that does in any way – yes, some guys who can be blue belts also can compete in the UFC, but the point being is not that. From a general, again, common standard of excellence, it just doesn't meet the mark. We know it doesn't meet the mark. Um, you know, I don't even know how old he is, closer to 40 than 30, certainly. It's a terrible idea. But because they have a debt load to service, this is what happens. So um, – I absolutely commend him on his martial arts journey. I do not commend him on his MMA career. And I think I'm allowed to make that distinction without being called some kind of absurd critic. And we need to be able to make that call uh, more easily. He has done he has done good work in the gym. And I absolutely salute him for it. But that's about it. Killer V? As wrong as the shevchenko Ketchwara matchup was, do you think that it might be the very performance needed to launch Valentina as the successful face of the 125-pound division? No. The beating she's going to probably, in all likelihood, put on Nico Montagna will do that. Uh, I am well aware of the mismatch and ability between the two fighters, going so far as to say the fight should have never been made. However, um, that is without even mentioning the ref's decision. Still, a dancing, blood-soaked Shevchenko made a dramatic image on the highlights will go together for one hell of a video package. Sure, it helps in that sense. Should the UFC capitalize on these images and try to forget it ever happened? I'm sure they will capitalize. That's the name of the game. Um, they have not, to my knowledge, the UFC has not come out and said they're rethinking their matchmaking process, have they? They've absolutely not acknowledged that they've done anything wrong. So I fully anticipate that they will use that as a video package. And it, it will probably work. It will probably work. But I don't think they were, I mean, what the, the ratings were what? They were good, not great. Somewhere in the 850 range, I think, somewhere like that, a 1,000, um, which is fine. Yeah, that's a fine number. But I think it would have to happen on a, um, a big card, right, like a big event, some kind of like whoa moment. And I don't think the Belen card was nothing, but uh, you don't want your fight, well, the discussion about the fight being the referee did a really bad job, and let's talk about the referee. You want it to be, wow. You know, like like look at the difference in the, the Habib and the and the and the Barboza fight. What came out of that was like, holy crap! Like, look at what Habib was able to do. That's really what you want to really, you know, drive a discussion, drive momentum. This I'm not saying that this won't help because it will, it absolutely will. 
but it's not it's not optimal because so much of this discussion is centered around referee or corner performance. And you hear her corner being like, you know, we know we know her limits. Clearly not. <laughs> Clearly that's not true. You can say that. Clearly that's not true. So ridiculous. We we know her limits. Mm mm. Mm mm. Refs getting access to the score between rounds. Hi, Luke. Remember a few years ago, I asked Big John on Twitter if he considers the overall situation of a fight before call. What? For instance, a guy is receiving a beating for four rounds. It's clearly losing on points, and his opponent is ground and pounding him. According to Big John, his thought process for that call is totally different from the same ground or pound in the first round. And to me, even common sense being an unwritten rule, I think it's a very correct approach. Should this be a written rule? Should uh, something like the ref getting the scorecard after every round to have a uh, a former a technical opinion about the fight? This is what they're writing. Sorry if it doesn't make sense. It probably wound up helping in Shevchenko's case because it was only the second round, but could be helpful. I don't think you need to know the scoring in a situation like that. You would only need to know the scoring in a situation where it's close, and even then you wouldn't need to know the scoring. I'm not opposed to open scoring as a debate we can have, but I don't think you have to make this a written rule as I mentioned before, if you're a referee, and Mario Masaki, by the way, and his brother Fernando are both black belts. They have a number of schools in the area, um, and they've taught for years and years and years. Like they're not, they know exactly what they're doing when it comes to the what's going on, on the mat. That's why I'm talking about how hard that job is to do. But if you're looking at the opponent and you can see that they're doing all these things that a skilled in any kind of way, a skilled practitioner on the mat would never do, that should be a red flag, man. Should be a red flag. You don't need to know the score about that. I don't, I don't you know. Um, there might be other discussions we can have about ways in which we can aid the referees to make more informed and competent decisions, and I'm happy to have that. But this one seems like we don't we don't need to do this. Uh, please rank these things in terms of their level of terribleness. One, Woodley versus Nate Diaz as the next welterweight championship fight. That's a bad one. Two, never throwing in the towel in MMA fight. Uh, three, people hating on Dodson for not accepting a fight with a featherweight. I couldn't believe, I mean, I guess I could believe that, but I completely understand John Dodson not doing that. John Dodson has a lot of fights on his record at bantamweight uh, and against guys who were big bantamweights. I think he fought Mike Easton at like 132, um, and it didn't go his way. You want him to fight a guy at 140 pounds? Come on, man. Please. Uh, the UFC plans a London card and then books a Brazilian and a Russian from the event. And then Mario Masaki ref in a fight between Gabby Garcia and a grandma. Oof. I'll say number one, never throwing in the towel for an MMA fight. Um, it's just so egregious that it happens this way. And then people defend it. We know her limits. Nah, nah, you don't. It's like nappy roots. Oh, no, no, you don't. No, you don't. Clearly you are not capable of making that call. I'll put... I'll put Woodley Diaz number two. I'll put I'll put London card three. I'll put uh, people hating on Dotson four, and then Mario Masaki five. Let me defend Mario for just a second. Not about this call, but I know everyone is killing the guy. And I again, there's no real way to defend his decision in this case. I, he just didn't do a great job, and I said as much. But I also want people to know that like we have this position in MMA where if someone makes a bad call or has a bad opinion, we want to just tear them to pieces rather than making it about the argument. And again, the argument about is whether or not did he make a competent referee decision. And in the broader context of 
referee decisions that he's made. Is this a person that should continue to be in this kind of position? That's what the debate about is about. It's not about whether or not he's a good or bad person, because I got good news for you. If you want to have that debate, Mario's going to win. He's a great guy. Him and his brother are great guys. I mentioned before, they've opened up, I think, 10 schools in the area, and I know some of their black belts. Um, Louis uh, uh, Pantoja is one here in D.C. on 14th Street. Nice guy. Nice guy. Uh, very competent guy. And you could say, well, these are for-profit institutions. They're making money off these guys. Yeah, man, but they brought jujitsu to the area in, a long time ago. Long time ago, you know? There's something that should be said for that. There are black belts, you know. Um, they're members of the community. Now, again, whether or not they should be refing and whether or not that was a bad call, well, let's have that debate. But I, we, we got to stop this nonsense. We're just tearing Mario to pieces like he's some a-hole that, you know, let his dog take a dump on your lawn. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Um, it was an, it was an, a, a bad mistake that he made, but... I, I, the broader picture and the and the contribution to the martial arts community of Mario Masaki is an exonerating one. It is not a, a one that makes him look bad. Let me be very, very clear about that. And Fernando too. Um, and I just get sick of this where, where if a person has an opinion we don't like, well, not only do we not like that opinion, but this person must also be on 4chan Al-Qaeda chat rooms, you know, touching himself in front of other ones. It's just... Why can't it just be that this was opinion we disagree about and this person's not, you know, um, some living instantiation in the human form of the AIDS virus? I just don't get it. All right, it's 2.15. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Uh, you can tweet me at LThomasNews and use the chat, the, the hashtag chat wrappers, and I'll get to them now. Oh, God. Uh, let's see. Oh, that's hilarious. Zidane has decided to sell Isco. The French coach has been disappointed by the player and has decided that if he was to remain at the Burnaby next season, then Isco is to be sold. Late night Spanish football television show El, El Chiringuito have reported that if Zidane remains at the Bernabeu next season, one of the first priorities for the French coach would be to sell Isco. Yeah, well, they chose Isco over Hamas. So, smart call. Uh, are people sleeping on Tony Ferguson against Habib? No. Tickets haven't even gone on sale yet. I have very high hopes for that April show. I think it will do quite well. Um, is Tyron Woodley's unpopularity due to being so two-faced now that he is the champ? Coming up, on, coming up, all he did was complain about champs not finding their number one contender. Now all he talks about is money fights. Um, I don't know how two-faced he is. He fought Thompson twice and then Demi and Maya. So, I don't know. Uh, is it possible that the UFC is waiting for Romero or Rockhold to match up something for 222, depending on how the fight goes? That seems like an awfully quick turnaround. I don't could could be, but I don't think so. Uh, how pumped was I to be featured on Open's MMA tweet? I had no idea that so many of you uh, dudes out there peed sitting down. I had no clue how many Timberlake fans were out there. I cannot imagine a world where somebody actually thinks, although it's the one we live in, apparently that that person is some sort of like artist, uh, artist period, because he's not. Um, he's a stage performer, and that's not nothing. But I had, I had no idea how many of you uh, indulged in this forced fantasy that we're supposed to have every Super Bowl, that pop music is great. Uh, I don't listen to pop music because it's bad. I didn't know so many of you did. And if you do, you need to really evaluate your life. The, the idea that this is a guy who has any kind of coherent or laudable 
artistic worldview is a joke. He has nothing other than what the producers and songwriters have around him. His current single, I checked it out, has five songwriters on the credit, and I think two or three producers. Please, y'all, you can say whatever you want about the music I listen to, and to some extent, it is kind of goofy. Right? I'm totally at ease with that, but you look at the songwriting credits, there ain't a lot of names on it. It's the same ones over and over because they produce their own work, and at the very least, they have stuck to a vision, an artistic vision, that they've maintained it over time, often to their own commercial detriment. This notion, I'm supposed to, uh, like, I'm going to clap like a seal for this guy who is the product of a record label trying to maximize sales of albums for what I thought was a demo of teenage girls, but apparently you donkeys out there, not all of you, but there's a lot of you donkeys like, yeah, he's really talented. Please take that to another sucker because it's so not true, so not true. He's a stage performer, and that's fine. That, that's 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 a very important skill, but he ain't an artist. Sorry, I got real bad news for you. Let me pop that bubble. Uh, let's see. Are the Wizards better without John Wall? They are right now. They're going to trade Marcin Gortat, who is hot basura. Isn't it interesting that as recently as this past summer, fans were calling for Nunes or Noons to be stripped because she pulled out of 213 with sinusitis. Now they are praising her for wanting to move up and berating Cyborg for not wanting to fight. Uh, there's different issues, though. I think those are different issues. The different issues would be um, that they saw her pulling out for what they saw was a medically, um, in their judgment, a medically um, insignificant problem. And I think anytime somebody wants to move up in a way, most people are going to be appreciative of that. So I think it's two separate issues. Can you expand on your thoughts as to why Anderson Silva's legacy is not as tarnished by most recent USADA failure? I think I know where you're headed, but it just happened towards the end of his career, which gives him plausible deniability to people who are hardcore anti-doping acolytes. Um, it, it certainly creates a measure of suspicion, but that's about it. Suspicion is not the same as something like in the middle of your career failing it. Um, and I think he'll have, I think he has, depending on what you, your view of plausibility is, he has some measure of plausible deniability. Uh, true or false? CM Punk lasts one round in second fight. Connor, okay, true or false? Connor, Connor CM, or yeah, CM Punk lasts one round in second fight. I mean, it depends who they match him up against, but probably. Connor versus Floyd MMA fight happens. I'm probably going to be so wrong about this. I'll say false. UFC 1000 on Mars. Sure. True. Michael Keaton is the best Batman. No. I put him... I I, I didn't mind uh, the machinist guy. What's his name? Uh, Christian Bale? I didn't mind him as Batman. Uh, Michael Keaton just didn't strike me as, you know, I don't know, nimble enough. Uh... Any updates on Kat Zingano? Yeah, she's fighting Kitlin Vieira, UFC 222. Uh, let's see. Oh, good question, because you don't get enough questions about deadlifts. What do you think of Dave Tate's advice to stand up between reps when doing high rep deadlifts, i.e. turning a set of 10 into 10 singles? Tried it last week, and we'll try it again today, but love it so far. It's actually what I've been doing recently as well. Um, it's easy for me to, to keep upper back tightness on sumo. It's a little bit harder for me to keep upper back tightness on um, 
on uh, on conventional because I don't like I don't like to set position and then grab. I like to grab the bar and then set position. And I, there's no right or wrong answer with that one. But I've tried it that way. Let me set up, and I don't take I don't do the breathing up top. But I'll set my shoulders and lats. Then I'll reach down and then brace and then load the hamstrings, turn the elbows in, and then stand. Um, and I've had a lot of success with that. And until I can get and make, but, but you know, when you go to the top of the rep and then drop down, your back will naturally round out a little bit. At least it does for me. So I'm trying to work on maintaining that tightness. So it makes it hard because it, it also lengthens the, the extent of your workout. But um, I love it. I love it. Would Tyron Woodley be as good of a color commentator as he is an analyst? I was wondering about this. I would like to see him try because to me, he's the best guy on that desk. Now, Dominic Cruz on the desk is also good. All, all those guys are good. Michael Bisping's good. Eves Edwards is good. Um, Jimmy Smith was only been on once, but he was naturally good. Who am I forgetting? There's a lot of guys on that desk. Kenny Florian's good. All those guys are good. It just to me, Tyron Woodley has just got real good information, excellent broadcasting skills. He says things in a parsimonious way. He gets it out. Look, your taste may vary. I'm not telling you you have to believe this. I'm just saying for my money, on that desk, he's really good. And so it's like got me like head scratching. Well, maybe he'd be good as a color commentator too. That's a very different skill. So I, I, I don't know. But I'd be I'd be curious to hear to 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 see him try. You know. Any news on Dominic Cruz returning? Not for me, unfortunately. But uh, I wish I could have better information for you. As weak as 221 is overall, I'm actually really excited to see how Israel Adesanya fares in the UFC. Is this something that interests you? This is the guy that has all the crazy kicks where he can hand, you know, plant a plant a uh, fist on the ground with his glove and then do like a head kick. He's amazing, right? And if not, what fight, if any, apart from the main event, generates the most curiosity for you? Let me pull that. Oh, I would say Ben Wynn versus Juicier Formiga. That's a tough fight for Ben Wynn. He's been looking to break through. Um, you know, yeah, he had that fight against Lewis Smoko didn't go his way. He's been able to rebound. This would be a big test for him. If he can get by Juicier Formiga, man, you might have your next contender over at um, Flyweight. And we'll see what happens if Juicier wins. But uh, it, it, that, that'll be interesting. That'll be interesting to see. Uh, let's see. Is it me or UFC not arsed with the promotion of UFC 221? It's Wednesday and no embedded episodes so far. I think there's one up right now. I think there's one up right now. All the talk about stoppages and corners throwing in the towel. Interesting to note, the only two examples of throwing the towel I could find are Nate versus Thompson and Smoker versus Wynn. In neither case did the ref see the towel. It doesn't work well in the cage. That could be a problem, too. That could be a problem, too. Sure. There's a lot of ways that that whole system could be improved. No doubt about it. It's a great point. <laughs> if you could replace the mannequin in Elon Musk's space car, which, by the way, overshot its... Uh, intended target and is now headed for an asteroid belt. Uh, with any person of your choosing, who would it be and why? Ooh. Justin Timberlake. Just to watch the just to watch the tears of uh, so many people who who ostensibly call themselves grown adult men. I could have sworn his demo was teenage girls, but who knew? Who knew that so many men out there had the taste of a fourteen year old pimply girl? I didn't. Uh, should Bellator heavily bid on Brian Ortega or other young fighters? Well, it looks like he has a new contract. As they are on their upward climb to beef up their ranks and not depend solely on the old guard. You would think that's true, but I think they're trying to find this sort of sweet spot where they can get 
they're trying to bolster guys who already have a name and not one they have to build. Remember, they balked at uh, Aljamain Sterling as well. Um, this is one of my points. We had this debate on the MMA beat about like what would happen if UFC went under. Like, oh, well, somebody else would come and take its place. But like Bellator isn't equipped to be the UFC. Um, and maybe they would try if given the opportunity and if UFC collapsed or something. But to me, it's like these other organizations just don't have the ability to be anything other than what they are. So it, it, at least I, I, it's a good question. It's a great question. You would think that they would want to do that, but I, I, I think they wonder, we don't want to take on somebody who can't already deliver for us. Now, we don't mind taking on somebody who uh, can't deliver as much as another one, but we want people who already have an ability to draw an audience. And so if you can't already draw an audience um, independent of the UFC's halo, you know, they're probably going to pass. And, and, and I, I guess to some extent I understand that. Luke, don't you think Rose versus Ian Jacek 2 has a similar feel to Aldo versus Holloway 2? Yeah, a little bit. Although, um, by the way, someone was asking me, uh, I saw this in the, let me go back to the thing here. Somebody was asking me about, um, saw this earlier. She wanting a JCheck question. Is she doing her own? Is she doing her own um, diet? So I asked around actually, and the answer is yes. She is doing her own diet, sort of. She is not. So you know, she was with like was it perfecting athletes, and she, she had a terrible weight cut and everything. So she left them. She is doing her own diet with apparently uh, input from other experts at American Top Team. And I believe that her trainer, Phil Daru or Daru, however you pronounce his last name, D-A-R-U, is handling her weight cut. I don't know if what if he might also be giving nutrition advice. Don't hold me to that. But I do know that she is mostly doing her own nutrition and he is going to be handling her weight cut. So we'll see how that goes. Now, to your point, are they happening in succession? Yes, although the first – I know Aldo was like he had the injury in the first fight. It could be that case. I just feel like, you know, Max took his time to sort of like slowly get into the fight with Aldo. It went three rounds. This one was such a bulldozing that people, I think, rightly are asking questions. It could be the case that, look, Rose goes in there and does the exact same thing again. There's also a question to be asked of like, okay, um, sure, there were some other circumstances here, this weight cut, and then more to the point, uh, it happened so fast. What lessons can you really draw from that other than either she's way better than we thought, which is very possible, or that this one might be a little bit different the second time around. But you're, I, I agree. Um, the, the, here's the big question. Was the first fight... Here's the question. When it's all said and done after the second fight, how representative will the first fight be? Um, and I think because of the length of the first fight between Aldo and Holloway, you had a sense that that was pretty representative. The question is, it's hard to know how representative this one is. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying it is. I'm, I'm literally saying I don't know. But that's going to be the question heading into the second one is, how, how similar do they look? Uh, let's see. Lawmakers, make Tide Pods look less appetizing. No. You guys remember that scene from Saving Private Ryan where they go in the bunker when they storm the beach? And then they get the flamethrower and they shoot the flamethrower into the bunker and all the Germans come out on top, all on fire. And the Americans look at each other and they say, don't shoot, let them burn. This is my attitude. They eat these Tide Pods. You don't call 
poison control. You just let that play out. Uh, what will WWE do if the crowd turns on Rousey and starts chanting, you got knocked out and Rousey can't handle that and proceeds to walk off stage? Don't know, because I won't be watching. Uh, let's see. What does a post-Dana White UFC look like to you? Yeah, it's a longer question for another time, but it's a good one. I'm going to star that one, because that's a good one. I don't have time to get into that now. Last one. What? True or false? Valentina Shevchenko will break Rousey's title defense record. I'll say true. Uh, the Holloway Max Holloway is still 145 pound champ this time next year. True. Cristiano Ronaldo will be replaced by Madrid in the summer by either Kane or Icardi. Kane, maybe. I'll say true. Who cares? All right. Uh, like the video, please subscribe to the channel below. Uh, MMA fighting, I appreciate when you do. Uh, I do believe there's an MMA beat tomorrow, so look, uh, be on the lookout for that. And of course. Um, some coverage from Australia, I think, as well. I'm not exactly sure where Casey and Esther are, but you know how we do. We're going to have some coverage for you one way or the other. So appreciate you guys tuning in. Thank you so much. I will get this podcast up on iTunes, I promise. Uh, and that will do it for me. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching. Stay frosty.